Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Nuhoko, and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories in Africa, Rise and Shine at the Sawa. Experts discuss issues hampering peace and security in Africa and heated arguments erupt in the South African Parliament. In economics, Orange Botswana to introduce the 4G MiFi dongle. And in sports news, Finland beats South Africa's Banyana Banyana at the Cyprus Cup. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. Mali's Tureg-led rebels are meeting with the government and smaller armed groups in the city of Gidal. The Tureg-led rebels must decide on signing a peace deal already accepted by the government and the smaller armed groups. The meeting began four days after UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon urged the main rebel alliance known as the Coordination to sign a peace deal pinned in Algeria on the 1st of March. The Malian government signed the agreement along with some northern pro-Bamako armed rebels, armed groups rather, but the rebels asked for more time. Morocco has recalled its ambassador to Nigeria over a row over whether the president of Nigeria is trying to use the king of Morocco to win over Muslim voters. Last week, the Moroccan royal palace said the king had declined a request for a telephone conversation with the Nigerian president, Goodluck Jonathan. Nigeria's foreign ministry denied the snub on Monday and said the two leaders had spoken extensively. Morocco cited the hostile, recurrent and unfriendly positions of the Nigerian government with regard to the Moroccan Sahara issue and the sacred Arab Muslim causes as a reason for declining Jonathan's call. Authorities in Côte d'Ivoire have been urged by the UN Human Rights Chief to focus on justice for victims of serious abuses that occurred before and during the 2011 conflict in the country. UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Zahid Rahad al-Hussein, made the appeal in the wake of Tuesday's guilty verdicts against supporters of former President Laurent Gbagbo. Eighty-three people were charged with offences against the state and its institutions. Gbagbo plunged the West African country into a crisis after he refused to accept defeat in the 2010 presidential election. 
The transitional government and members of civil society in the Central African Republic have met with members of the United Nations Security Council in the capital, Bangui. UN spokesperson Stefan Dujaric says the council delegation, which is on a four-day mission to Africa, also met with the diplomatic corps and the UN mission in the country, MINUSCA. This is the Security Council's first visit to the country since the mission's deployment last September. Council members are on the ground to assess the progress made in stabilizing the country and the first month of operation of MINUSCA. Security Council members will also visit Burundi and the headquarters of the African Union in Ethiopia. And finally, Zimbabwean police say they are investigating the abduction of an anti-government activist. Police say Itai de Zamara's wife reported that he'd been abducted by five men. Civil rights activists and opposition leader Morgan Changarai blamed the abduction of the former journalist on security agents. Desamara has regularly called on President Robert Mugabe to step down. Six police officers and an activist were injured yesterday when demonstrators clashed with police after marching to the Zimbabwean parliament to demand the release of the anti-government campaigner. Obud Godu is spokesperson for the Movement for Democratic Change. The march by our youth was a peaceful uh, protest and they were just uh, singing and marching and holding placards uh, calling for the immediate release of uh, Itai Damara. Unfortunately, uh, as they were demonstrating just adjacent to the end, main entrance of the parliament uh, building along Nelson uh, Mandela Avenue, they were then uh, set upon by heavily armed uh, riot police who were armed with... Uh, you know, assault rifles and also tear gas canisters. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you. And it is exactly 8.06 Central African time on this Thursday, March the 12th, the 71st day of the year 2015, with 294 days left in the year. In our top story, the African Union has expressed concern over underlying challenges that undermine the continent's quest for peace and security. Speaking in Rwanda's capital, Kigali, during the Africa Peace and Security Validation Architecture Workshop, El Gassim Wayne, Director of Peace and Security, cited limited financial allocations as one of many hurdles the continent is faced with towards establishment of the continent's standby force. Military experts from five African regions are attending the meeting. Silvanus Karamera reports from Kigali. For the next two days, experts in military affairs, civil society representatives, personnel deployed in military interventions, alongside government officials, are meeting here to discuss matters related to peace and security missions across Africa. Not clear, the continent is being overseen through its five regions, East, West, North, South, and Central. Not clear each of these regions has the mandate to establish its standby force, which ultimately may form the continental force before the end of 2015, as agreed by African heads of state and governments in 2004. However, 
Ten years down the road, the continent has fell short of this expectation. But this day, according to Elgas Mwen, Director of Peace and Security at African Union headquarters, hinges on a number of reasons. We are uh, reliant on external funding for many of our efforts. We welcome, of course, the generosity and support of our partners, but we also believe that as Africans we need to dig deeper into our pockets uh, to fund our peace and security agenda. Elizabeth Mutunga is from Comesa Secretariat. She says poverty, lack of financial and political will, have snatched Africa's peace and prosperity ambitions, despite the fact that Africans are aware of what they deserve. Not so much of our, our capability. I can assure you that we are capable. The problem is finances. And that is not now our problem as Rex, it's our problem as Africans as a whole. I don't know whether member states are giving enough money to peace and security issues. And if that were the case, perhaps we would be able to be stronger on the ground. But I want to assure you and reassure you that as Africans, we know what to do. Perhaps we just don't have the money to do it. Mm. To date, the process of establishing Africa's five regional standby forces is being undertaken by the Eastern African region was praised for the progress made to this effect. The regional standby force is already in place, and according to Rwanda's Chief of Defense Staff General Patrick Nyamvumba, the region is ready for any intervention where needs arise. We in the East African region, being mindful of the stage of conflict on the continent, decided to fast-track, as indicated by uh, Ambassador Shafi, the full operational capability of the East African standby force in line with the AU roadmaps 1, 2, and 3 to date in order to avoid a repeat of what we had a uh, few years back, particularly uh, in North Africa. With the changing trends on African continent on matters of peace and security, Ambassador Ismail Shah from Eastern African Standby Force Secretariat believes that the issue of financial capacity needs special attention if the continent is to realize prosperity. When you have a standby force, uh, force on standby us. You will need somehow uh, standby resources so that the decision to deploy by uh, seven days or 15, 14 days, you have the resources to deploy. You don't have to wait when it is something uh, or just occurs here that you have to deploy or in any part of Africa have to deploy by seven days, 15, 14 days. The overall budget for African standby force and its full operationalization is estimated to the tune of more than three billion US dollars. Silvano Scaremera reporting for Channel Africa from Kigali. Desperation has taken over the hope that the citizens of South Sudan had for peace to return to their country. Representatives of different groups had camped in Addis Ababa as they waited for President Salva Kiir and rebel leader Riek Machar to reach an agreement on a transitional government. For more on this, Koleta Wanjohi spoke to Amar Manyok Deng, leader of the South Sudan Women Bloc in the IGAD-led South Sudan mediation. Most of us, we the people who came for the peace talk, we are going back disappointed because this is not what we were expecting for our country. We know there was been a turmoil in our country and most of the people who are suffering are children and women and vulnerable group. And then as our country is the youngest nation in, in the world, uh, there was no good stability in the country. So that one has really left us with a lot of worry. What next? 
We have had the two warring leaders, that is President Salva Kiir and rebel leader Riek Mashar, failing to agree on pertinent issues that would give your country, South Sudan, a uh, transitional government and perhaps lead it towards uh, sustainable peace. What is your opinion of the fact that they did not really come up with any agreement? What do you think caused this disagreement? You know what we have realized? It's not about that uh, there are the areas are uh, yes the areas are di- of disagreement that has really made this peace agreement not to succeed this time round are really not really very difficult to be handled. Even recently, we were given uh, the work as a stakeholders to work on it, but they didn't give us chance even to contribute towards uh, what uh, what is really affecting what is going to affect the country as soon. So uh, the, the feeling that we have, uh, we don't know what is behind it. Up to now, we don't know what is behind it. Now, what message do you have for the women of South Sudan, whether living in South Sudan, in refugee camps, or in other parts of the world, who have been expecting peace, and uh, many are now fearing that South Sudan may fall further into conflict? What message do you have particularly for the women of South Sudan during this trying moment? Uh, The only message that I have to give to the women of South Sudan all over the world is they have to keep hope and pray. There is a time for everything. I think this time round is not the time that we are going to get peace. But God will bring a time where we will get peace. We know that we have been praying. We have been pushing a lot for the people to understand because actually what we know so far, where people die, these two principles are not there. So they don't see. Where the people are suffering, they don't see. But if at all they used to see it, they would have come to compromise. But since they don't see it and they, and they only hear it, and maybe people around them tell them, no, this is not the way it's supposed to be and this is not the way it's supposed to be, um, there is always a time for everything. Even the Bible says there is a time for everything. We will not lose hope. And as a representative of the women, um, you have said, and it is a common knowledge, that women mostly suffer during conflicts. And in the South Sudan case, it has been evident that this has happened and is bound to even happen much further. What message do the women of South Sudan, as, as your representative, what message do they have for President Salva Kiir and rebel leader Riek Mashar? You know, people have scattered enough in the country and they suffer. And the only thing is people are talking about the names of the leaders as if they're the ones who are not giving a chance, peace a chance. We need them to give peace a chance. Let them give peace a chance. Because of suffering of children, let them give peace a chance. Because of suffering of women, let them give peace a chance. Because of the suffering of vulnerable group, we don't really see because it is only one country, you know. And what do they mean? Do they need to divide the country? That is when they can pull all this rope. But if it, since it is one country, they are supposed to give, to forgive themselves, and then they move forward and they agree because of the people. You know, they are supposed to put the interests of the people first. 
A representative from the Nigerian government has assured the business and investment community that there is nothing to fear and the country remains open for business. The minister in charge of trade and investment at the Nigerian High Commission in South Africa, Kayode Onguntuwase, was speaking at the Frontier Advisory Forum in Johannesburg. Ntlantla Mahlangu has more. Nigeria assumed the position of Africa's largest economy in 2014 and as such has attracted a great deal of investor interest. But 2015 is turning out to be a far more challenging year for Nigeria. The rapid drop in the oil price has been destabilizing negatively, impacting the country's revenue and currency value. Despite the broadening of the economy with new sectors contributing to the GDP, Nigeria remains very much oil dependent with almost 90% of its export revenue coming from a single commodity. However, security concerns remain and there are fears that the upcoming elections may further compound the unstable situation. The Minister in Charge of Trade and Investment at the Nigerian High Commission in South Africa, Kayonda Ogutuase, has conceded that 2015 has been a challenging year, but he says they will turn the tide. We are believing and we are assuring you that particularly by the middle of uh, 2015, you will see Nigeria bouncing back. We will see the, main, the largest economy in Africa despite the challenges and uh, we are assuring you that uh, we are putting challenges behind us. Particularly the issue of uh, Boko Haram, many of you will have seen uh, the development that are taking place there. The joint uh, multinational force comprising that of Nigeria, Chad, Cameroon, Niger, and uh, to a little extent uh, Republic of Benin. And with the support of the AU and also support of also friends of Nigeria and friends of Africa, we are already winning the war. Boko Haram structures, Boko Haram's offensive, Boko Haram warfare, they are being dismantled on a daily basis. He says the elections will go ahead on the 28th of this month. The federal government of Nigeria is going ahead with the election program and we are assuring you that the government of uh, President Jonathan is going to deliver free, fair, credible, transparent, peaceful and non-violent election. We want the international community to be rest assured that Nigeria has the resilience to take care of its challenges, whether political, whether economic, or even whether even in the security aspects. Boko Haram, an Islamist militant group, has attacked Nigeria's police and army, schools, religious buildings, public institutions and civilians with increasing regularity since 2009. More than 10,000 people have been killed in Boko Haram-related violence and 1.5 million have been displaced. Some experts view the group as an armed revolt against government corruption, abusive security forces and widening regional economic disparity. They argue that Abuja should do more to address the strife between the disaffected Muslim North and the Christian South. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Tlantla Mahlangu in Johannesburg. On the 17th and 18th of this month, join Channel Africa as we bring you live a broadcast on the second annual public-private dialogue forum on infrastructure projects held at the Hayat Hotel, Rosebank, South Africa.
This summit will discuss the mechanisms, the successes and failures of local and international economic development initiatives in order to make recommendations of how to adapt them to benefit the broader African community. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. An unflinching South African President Jacob Zuma took on opposition parties in the National Assembly yesterday, going toe-to-toe with them. Emotions and tensions once again ran high when Zuma was answering oral questions. The controversy on money spent on his Ngandla home took center stage despite its absence from the agenda. It was his first oral question session in the National Assembly since the chaotic sitting of the August 21st last year, which was adjourned after Zuma was interrupted with shouts from EFF on when he will pay back the money. Tsebo Iganing reports from Parliament. The session kicked off with an hour-long robust debate on whether President Jacob Zuma should continue from where he left off on August the 21st. Speaker Balagambete had ruled the question had lapsed and President Zuma had answered those questions in written replies. But opposition parties were unhappy with Mbete's ruling that the planning committee should decide if another special session is needed to answer the outstanding questions. Opposition parties pressed for the committee to only decide on the date of a special sitting. EFF leader Julius Malema questioned parliamentary speaker Balega Mbete on her ruling. They wanted yesterday's session to continue from August the 21st. And I'm happy that today you addressed us before the president takes a podium because every time we are not proud to interject it. But you force us through how you conduct the business of this parliament to end up interrupting the president. So I must commend you today for having spoken before the president takes a podium so that ourselves and you will finish this matter and then allow the president to come and answer questions uninterrupted. We are pleading with you. An unfaced President Zuma took to the podium. Did you ask me? Because I never dodged. I want that issue to be clear. I've never dodged questions in this parliament. I've never. On a point of order, Honorable President. I've never. The president dismissed opposition claims that he avoided accounting to parliament on public funds spent on security upgrades at his Nkanja home. Whenever Parliament says I must come on anything, I do come. I've never refused. I was answered by the EFF many times. I answered the question. They wanted the answer they want, not what I was answering. I'm saying I've never refused when Parliament says here is a date. I do not decide the day. What we do, the speaker has requested you are an order. Giving no honourable Kadi, I never recognised you. We agree on the date with the parliament, and once it's agreed, I've always come. I will always come if parliament has agreed. There's no doubt about it. Honourable President. 
but he was interjected by EFF's MP Mbuisen Nrozi. Of our they were chaos. even, in front even of Honorable of President, can you take the seat, Baba? Please, they were actually, they, Honorable Speaker, Honorable this, President, this Parliament Honorable did not President, add Honorable to me. Democratic Alliance Parliamentary Leader Musi Maimani wanted President Jacob Zuma to commit to a date to answer questions on the Nkandla security upgrades. It's important for the people of this country that the President at least commits to complete the last session of the question and also commit to the people of this country that the answers to be given on that respective day that we agree with that in fact they will be answered fairly and accurately to the people of this country. Parliamentary Speaker Baleka Mbete stated the honestness when she was accused of elevating President Zuma above members of Parliament. Honorable Malema, for a start, the President is not anybody's equal here. Honorable Speaker. Honorable Shibambu, can you take your seat? I've recognized the Honorable Can you please recognize me, please? So please retract that articulation you made from the chair there to say that we are not equal, that people are more equal than others. There's no such thing. Malema chastised Mbete for not rebuking President Zuma for refusing to heed to her instruction to stop speaking when an MPs raised a point of order. Ordinarily you'll agree with us that when you call all of us to stop speaking, all of us should respect that, including the president. Can you please make a ruling on those two issues? On the matter of whether he was hearing me as I was asking him, what I can see is that he, he was in full flight in, 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 in responding to Honorable Maimane and engaging with Honorable Maimane. So I couldn't quite tell, I couldn't figure out whether he was hearing what I was saying. President Zuma also answered, amongst others, concerns raised on independence of the judiciary, leadership and challenges plaguing law enforcement agencies and role of the traditional leaders. His next appearance in Parliament will be when he addresses the National Council of Provinces in May. Tsepo Ikaneng, SBC News, in Parliament. Let's go back in time to today in 1994. Chief Lucas Mangope is deposed as leader of South African homeland of Baputatswana. Dr. Jard van der Walt is appointed as the territory's new administrator. Let's listen to Mac Maharaj, a member of the Transitional Executive Council at the time. Effectively now, the governing authority is the South African government acting in conjunction with the Transitional Executive Council. Professor van der Waalt was appointed by us as the temporary and interim administrator. Now, his authority will come from the South African government who will be acting together with the TEC. His purpose is to revive the administration of the country and the area so that services uh, are resumed and uh, people return to work, uh, departments uh, necessary for delivery of services can begin to function. Secondly, we've also appointed the SADF under the authority of the South African government and the TEC to uh, ensure stability, law and order, and uh, to liaise, therefore, with the existing uh, structures and administration in that area. That was Mac Maharaj, member of South Africa's multi-party Transitional Executive Council, speaking on this day in 1994.
It's 8.27 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The head of Oxfam in South Africa, Sipom Tati, has expressed disappointment over President Jacob Zuma's recent suggestion of separating mothers from their babies until they have completed their schooling. In his address to traditional leaders in Parliament, Zuma maintained that allowing teenage mothers to leave school was proving an untenable burden on society and the state's welfare bill. Therefore, they should be forced to complete school far away before they can be reunited with their babies. Mtati, however, says that the statesman's suggestion indicates that he does not take cognizance of the root causes of teenage pregnancy in the country. Jane Matabula reports. Adamant that the point he is making is part of nation-building, South African President Jacob Zuma acknowledged that he expects his suggestion to be met with resistance, as was the case when he first expressed his view during his 2009 election campaign. Zuma feels that the government should ensure that teenage mothers are separated from their babies and sent to school far away, even giving an example of Robben Island, where political activists were imprisoned during the apartheid regime. The young mothers are only to be reunited with their babies once qualified. This has indeed, however, sparked controversy yet again. Speaking at a conference which sought to determine whether or not South Africa is a society in crisis, Sipom Tati, head of international organization Oxfam, expressed shock over Zuma's stance. So, I mean, on the statement that the president made about how South Africa would be dealing with what could be considered a crisis, of what is called teenage pregnancy was shocking in the way that it firstly takes no account of the context in which young women's autonomy and choice is compromised by the economic situation, by this uh, social situation where we know that in South Africa, despite all the you know, good laws that uh, promote the rights of everyone, including women, that women are still living in a society where their rights are not um, you know, recognized as human rights where um, women are still not considered people because we have a patriarchal society that says that you know men are the real people with rights and who have the right to hold power in society and women are subject to male power so we still have that as a pervading mentality in our society and in a context where We know that many of these pregnancies came through coercion and the fact that the president did not use this as an opportunity to say, let us really understand what's going on here. Let us understand what it is we need to do as a society to protect the right and promote the rights of young women. Let us understand why it is that this is happening. Tati maintains that young adolescents should not take the blame alone for the teenage pregnancy scourge. We feel that this is again an approach that one problematizes young women as the only people responsible in this equation of a pregnancy situation. One that also like blames them, you know, as they are responsible for 
you know, it's this notion that they are bringing problems to society and young women are just wanting to be a burden on society because they fall pregnant, they have to get social grants. So this criminalization actually of young women and, you know, blaming the victims of a social system where young women are often have no choice and are compromised by the many, you know, their ability to choose you know, how they engage in sexual relations is still compromised by unequal relations between men and women and the other socioeconomic problems. President Zuma's comment comes in the midst of the 59th session of the Commission on the Status of Women underway in New York and less than a week after the global commemoration of Women's Day. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Matebula in Johannesburg. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Good morning. Nigeria recaptures 36 stars from Boko Haram since the start of a military operation by regional West African countries against the militant group. Mali's direct-led rebels meet with the government and smaller armed groups in the city of Kidal, and the transitional government and members of civil society in the Central African Republic meet with members of the United Nations Security Council in the capital, Bangui. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, réveille-toi. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun, rise it. Le soleil élevé. Weya, wema. What's in the happen, Africa? Africa, du melang, san bonani. Africa, mulishani, mulibwanji. Africa, eh, yomi, kilon shele. Africa, ndinkim, kinkunume. What's in the happen, Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. We, we are, are one people. people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Heirs of the late soul singer Marvin Gaye won a 7.4 million US dollar judgment against recording stars Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams, who a jury found plagiarized the Motown artist in the creation of their hit single, Blurred Lines. The U.S. District Court jury in Los Angeles decided with Gay's estate, finding that parts of his 1977 hit, Gotta Give It Up, were lifted by Thick and Williams for their 2013 R&B chart topper. Let's listen to the two songs back to back. As you heard, very similar. Our question to you today, do you think there are similarities between the two songs? Send us your views and your thoughts on email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or get a hold of us on Twitter at RiseShineAfrica or at ChannelAfrica1. Do you think there are similarities between the two songs? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine.
Afrika Zora Afrika Amka na Unai It's 8.35 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Tourism officials in Zimbabwe say heavy police presence on the country's roads is tarnishing the nation as a tourist destination. Analysts say the law allowing police to receive spot fines is being abused and at times in short distances motorists cross numerous roadblocks. Most of the times, police demand spot fines and impound vehicles when motorists fail to comply. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. Zimbabwe is experiencing a war of ways between government officials and citizens regarding the conduct of the police on roadblocks. Although the country is rated the 14th best tourist destination in the world, police presence on the Zimbabwean roads is said to be negatively impacting the country's image. The country, the police are accused of being corrupt and demanding spot fines from motorists, mainly those driving cars with foreign number plates. Francis Nguenya, a representative of the Zimbabwe Council for Tourism, made the remarks during a public debate on the impact of the roadblocks on civil liberties and productivity of the nation. Alpha media publishers of several daily and weekly newspapers convened the discussion in Harare Wednesday. And uh, for us, it's not the first time that we've uh, uh, dealt with the issue of roadblocks. Um, and uh, we've engaged the police on several occasions as an industry because it, is, it has a major impact on our destination and our ability to be able to grow tourism. Tourism has a certain element which is the self-drive and it's a sector of, the, of our industry which would like to grow. Nguenya made an appeal to the Zimbabwean government to align the country's laws with fellow countries in the region to promote tourism. It's important that we align our roads, regulations, fines to SABIC. Because SADC is all about free movement of people and goods. And we find that South Africa, which is a big hub and a, a good market for us, if they don't have to have the regulation of carrying uh, extinguishers and vests, and then they're driving within the same region, and all of a sudden, uh, at the border, and when they cross into another country, the regulations and the rules change. It does not go in the spirit of free movement of people and free movement of goods and we would like the laws and the, and the traffic regulations to be aligned so that um, uh, the destination which is southern africa can uh, be a great experience for uh, tourists who want to come in and and enjoy uh, uh, travel within the within the region a lawyer with an organization called veritas kuda hobe described the police conduct as extortion and this is found in section 356 of the cp and e act which is the an act which gives the police power to actually say you have committed an offense whether you've got a broken tail light whether you've got a something that's missing from your car or from your registration papers 
And this gives them the option to actually say, this is how much you owe us. But what is not legal is for the police to then say to you, you are a Zimbabwean citizen, you forwarded your license to them, and then they actually say to you, park your car because you don't have the $20, because you don't have the $15, because you don't have whatever amount of money that they're looking for. That in itself is extortion. Another lawyer with the Legal Resource Foundation, Florence Chagadama, said the heavy police presence on Zimbabwean roads is dangerous and it is forcing drivers to use unsafe means as survival. So I think basically when we are trying to balance the issue of the right to personal security and privacy against uh, crime prevention, that the tilt should be towards the individual freedoms uh, from police interference. Meanwhile, a political analyst, Ibo Mandaza, said Zimbabwe is not different to the colonial era of Rhodesia, whereby police were abusing black Zimbabweans. Motorists, including passengers, are allegedly being abused by the police at the roadblocks, and this results in deaths as motorists try to flee Mandaza has said. There have all been a relationship between the increase in police activity and, and numbers on the one hand and the development of what I call the securocrat state. You call it a police state? Secure state. A securocracy in political economy describes a situation where people rule without the people. That's a description of it. <laughs> you don't have to have the people behind you to rule, you just rule. That's, that's what securocracy means. Don't blame me for saying that, that's what securocracy means. <laughs> now, we were shocked in my Minister Shinamasa's budget, uh, referred to the public service is now 500,000 people. Did you know that? And it's taking 87% of the budget. Of the 500,000, 300,000 are police and, and uh, law enforcement. What is that increase in numbers for? Is it for traffic? Reporting for Channel Africa, in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Experts from around the world will this weekend gather in Japan to discuss how countries can better prevent and prepare for natural and man-made disasters. In recent day, decades, Japan has faced a number of disasters resulting from tsunamis and earthquakes and is expected to be showcased as an example of how to tackle these catastrophes. Ahead of the third UN World Conference on Disaster Risk Reduction, Nan Zeng spoke with the Special Representative of the UN Secretary-General for Disaster Risk Reduction, Margareta Wallström, and she asked her what outcome the UN hopes will be reached in Sendai, Japan. The, the outcome and the goal, of course, is that we come out of the conference with a strong common framework for disaster risk reduction in the post-2015 area, and one that is strongly uh, aligned and coherent with the development agenda and the climate agenda, because that's one of the big findings and one of the, the areas that 
slow down many countries, according to their reports, is that the institutions and policies are not yet sufficiently well integrated. And therefore, too much is still done in parallel, whereas genuine action for sustainability would require a strong integration. I think the current status of the framework really lays this out very well, as well as, of course, a continued focus on uh, stronger preparedness measures for disasters and the importance of how reconstruction is done. So if that document gets fully agreed and is strong sense of, let's say, proximity to what countries, national, local governments need, then we have a success. And the other aspect of success will be that out of the conference comes a lot of new partnerships and even more in, a very, in an environment which is so intense in, in collaboration between organizations, local governments. If they come out of the conference with even more commitment to that collaboration being a strong foundation, that's also a sign of success. As we all know, 2015 is an important year for the United Nations. Uh, the Sendai Conference will kick off uh, a few major United Nations conferences to be held this year. Mm-hmm. How would the Sendai outcome fit into the upcoming International Conference on Finance for Development in July, the summit meeting to be held at the United Nations headquarters in New York in September, as well as the Climate Change Conference to be held in Paris later this year? Mm-hmm. It is a very critical year, of course, and as, as you probably heard the Secretary General uh, Ban Ki-moon just say, sustainability starts in Sendai. Uh, for me, that's a very strong illustration of that this is one of the cornerstones for success of all the efforts that's being put in 2015 for a sustainable and viable development future for all countries in the world. The critical factor for the disaster risk reduction framework is that understanding and managing risk needs to be inherent to all the development investments. Um, We say that most development investments uh, that have to happen have not happened yet. And most of the urban development that will will happen in the coming decades with a very strong urbanization trend in some of the poorest parts of the world today, but also the fastest growing economies. So it's an opportunity that lends itself to um, the increasing understanding of how risk, development, sustainability links to each other. And if we can keep that very strongly as an integrated part of the rest of this year, we will come out, uh, I think, with a better foundation for sustainability in 2016. Why is it significant to choose Japan as the venue for the conference? And what is significant about the whole city, Sendai? Japan is for sure one of the richest countries in the world, the most highly developed, but And that was Margareta Wallström, the Special Representative of the UN Secretary-General for Disaster Risk Reduction, speaking to UN Radio's Nan Zeng. It's 8.46 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhuku.
Cameroon has renewed the operating license of Africa's largest telecoms provider, MTN. South Africa's MTN, Cameroon's leading mobile provider with nearly 10 million subscribers or about 60% of the market, says it paid $125 million for the license, which allows it to deploy optical fiber cables. MTN says the license is renewed for 15 years until February 2030. Orange Botswana says it will soon introduce the 4G Wi-Fi dongle to allow more users to connect at a 4G Wi-Fi hotspot. The mobile giant says the device can be used with laptops or as a Wi-Fi device for more users to connect. Orange Botswana is the first and currently only 4G provider in the country and there are no additional data consumption costs with 4G. The mobile network says it will not be held responsible for an unsupported device purchased in another country. Zambia plans to triple petrol supply to 900,000 litres a day using imported stocks in its storage depots. This after panic buying by motorists led to shortages in the capital Lusaka. Zambia's energy minister Christopher Yaluma told parliament that petrol supply to the capital and outlying areas was doubled to about 600,000 litres per day this week. But shortages persisted. He says the shortage could have been caused by some oil marketing companies suspected of hoarding their petrol supplies in anticipation of a petrol hike, adding that government would not increase the price of petrol. If South Africa's power utility, Eskom, follows its race targets, strictly up to 3,400 white employees could lose their jobs. Now, that's according to the country's trade union solidarity. The union has criticized Eskom's latest employment equity plan, saying in its attempt, Eskom would be regarding race as more important than keeping the lights on. In a weekend report, specialist labor writer Jan Lange said that ASCOM had to reduce its white engineers by 1,081 and white artisans by 2,179 in order to comply with the strict new government requirements. Echepeka, Egypt, is staking its economic revival on an environment summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, hoping to burnish its image and attract billions of dollars. The gathering to be attended by global chief executives and officials, including the International Monetary Fund's Christine Lagarde and U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry, is not just about money. Egypt hopes the March 15th to, or rather, the March 13th to 15th event will put it back on investor radar by projecting an image of stability. The U.S. dollar trades at 12.31 South African rand, 9.88 Botswana Pula, 7.14 in Zambia, 0.65 British pound, 0.89 across the euro, gold 1.152 dollars, platinum 1.116 dollars an ounce, brand crude 5.785 cents a barrel. That's an economic update. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. Figile, how's South Africa doing in the cricket? I think they're doing very well at the moment. They, 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 they're really pushing uh, UAE to go down because they now lost three wickets. Okay, give us an update.
In our sports update this hour, we starting off with cricket news. Proteas have posted 341 for the loss of six wickets after 50 overs. UAE needs 342 to win. United Arab Emirates captain Mohamed Takir has backed up his pre-match predictions and his bowlers hit the right sports earlier after they won the toss and chose to field against South Africa in the ongoing ICC Cricket World Cup. Takir said prior to the Pool B game that he didn't expect South Africa to post a score in excess of 400 at Wellington Regional Stadium as they had done against West Indies and Ireland in earlier matches. South Africa, one of the pre-tournament favourites, have still not qualified for the knockout stages after an inconsistent tournament. UAE are now at 77 for the loss of three wickets after 18 or so with, uh, overs. A sprinter from Sierra Leone who disappeared after competing in last year's Commonwealth Games has been sleeping rough in London after being afraid to return home because of the Ebola virus. Jimmy Toronka raced in the 4 by 100 meters relay in Glasgow but disappeared at the end of the competition in August. He failed to return to Sierra Leone after discovering that several members of his family had been killed by the deadly virus. Toronka says he had tried to take his own life. I was here, homeless, no place to sleep, nowhere to go, no food. I went to people, go to people to help me, like ask people to, for a pound for me to get food. Someday I can think like I kill myself. So I have to go, like, go to the pound shop. If I get some pound, go to the pound shop and buy some paracetamol. So I will take like four or five paracetamol for me to just be harming myself. A student at Cambridge University set up an online fundraising appeal for the 20 year old sprinter. Teronga says he was delighted to hear about the wave of public support. By Monday, the campaign had raised more than 23,000 pounds in just three days. My career is that I want to be um, the fastest. I want to be one of the fastest in the world, to be one of the fastest printers in the world. That was my feature. I want to be fast in the world. I want to be one fast. When I hear that the people are coming out to help me, or sponsor me, I really feel excited that this really my dream is now at the corner for me to come true that I should start my training here I feel great and finally with golf news Tswane Open tees off in South Africa's capital city Pretoria today with Ross Fisher defending the title he won a centurion last year Tswane Open is an opportunity for South Africans to play in Europe and change their lives as well Michael Flesmas reports The South African challenge in the first three European tour events here this year has been under a bit of pressure. England's Andy Sullivan has won two of them, with only South Africa's Trevor Fisher Jr. breaking this hold in the third. The Chwane Open, which tees off at Pretoria Country Club on Thursday, offers the local golfers another chance to rectify this. George Kutsia and Richard Sterney are the home favourites, having played their junior golf here. And while the European challenge is a strong one, Italian star Matteo Manassero hasn't lost 
his sense of just how difficult it is to beat the South Africans on home fairways. Uh, every time we come here, uh, we're, we're a good contingent from, from Europe, but uh, it seems like uh, South Africans 90% of the times pull, pull it off. So uh, there are some really good players that obviously play on Sunshine Tour and we don't see very often in European Tour and we don't know about. So it's, it's always a strong field. Uh, even if we don't know every player, so it means that in South Africa, uh, well, we obviously know that there is some, some really good golfers. And, uh, you know, for us to come here and win, it's really, really difficult. Michael Flismus, Pretoria. And that's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, experts discuss issues hampering peace and security in Africa, and heated arguments erupt again in South in the South African Parliament. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutora Magaza and Elizabeth Ledicha, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show. Send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa is Johnny Clegg with a track titled Ipola Lit. <laughs>
Si vous sauvez, mais ma tinti pour la lettre. 